And, you know, things are going to happen over the next decade that we couldn't even contemplate. If you look back, you know, look back, you mentioned the iPhone. Before the iPhone, there was no app store. So app developer wasn't a thing. And now, how many people are app developers in the world? Millions? So we couldn't have foreseen that. And what is going to be the next big thing? Like, we, you know, last year we had ChatGPT come online and then it was like, oh, you're going to be a prompt engineer. And you're like, mm, maybe, <laughs> maybe ChatGPT is the prompt engineer. I don't know. Right. The VR Report Podcast with David Gino. Hey, what's up, everybody? This is David Jean O from the VR Report, and I have a very special guest, Alan Smithson. Alan, what's going on, man? Hey, thank you so much for having me. I'm very excited. This is great. Thanks, thanks so much for spending the time, especially uh, be right before the holidays. It was the uh, week before Christmas. <laughs> that's right. It's just the week before Christmas. Indeed. Um, Alan is a father at foremost and um investor as well as a futurist but alan you're gonna do a much better job give an intro for yourself can you do so for the audience sure so i consider myself an amateur futurist i i try to look out in the future but it, rather than just talk about it and you know write reports which you know there's a, an, a plethora of reports coming out in you know what's going to happen in 2024 to 2030 kind of thing uh we invent technology so i've uh, i've been a technologist we started in uh, around 2010 when we invented the emulator, which was a big see-through glass multi-touch application for the music industry. And so we created hardware and software for the music industry. And then I tried VR back in 2014. I was like, oh man, this is the future. Uh, got into virtual augmented reality back then. And uh, now we have our own uh, 3D game engine called Metaverse. So, and, and we called our company Metaverse ahead of the curve. So you could say that we were instrumental in creating that term in the popular uh, zeitgeist, if you would. Yeah, it's really unfortunate because, you know, Meta, changing their name and, and really focusing on Metaverse, I think it, it brought too much attention and at the same time, because they're the, the, the top dog in social media, it's easy to throw those shots at. Be with, with Facebook, like, you know, yeah, they all yeah. that. 4 billion users. <laughs> that's right. But at the same time, you know, hopefully that's, you know, brought a lot of attention to you as well. So that, yeah. that's I mean, pretty cool. The world now, you know, when, when I, uh, when I ask somebody for a, a tissue, I don't ask them for a tissue, I ask them for a Kleenex, right? So I think it's really cool that, you know, the entire world is discussing the future of the internet by using our brand name. That's right. That's right. So one day metaverse will be as ubiquitous as Kleenex. That would be awesome. <laughs> so you're also, uh, well, before we get into all that stuff, you know, I, I did want to understand more of your origin story. A lot of that stuff isn't shared online. So I thought that would be kind of interesting. Sure. I, I'll go back a little bit. I, I went to university for molecular biology. Uh, I have a degree in molecular, bi molecular biology and uh, my mom wanted me to be a doctor. And rather than doctor, I actually ended up being a DJ. Uh, so I ended up DJing. Um, yeah, for like 20 years, I did that full time. And then in 2010, we started the emulator company, which was the touchscreen. And, uh, and that was kind of our first foray into technology. And you know, when you don't know what you don't know, you know, and I, I think the, the CEO of NVIDIA uh, said it best, uh, Jensen Wong, uh, he said that, he was asked whether, you know, what he would do if he went back 20 years and, and to start a new company. And he said, I wouldn't start a new company. It's, it's too hard. I, I would not do it. And, you know, in retrospect, I look back at what we did. We created hardware and software and distributed it to, you know, 50 countries around the world. And we, it was hard, but, you know, we just, you know, when you don't know, you just like, hey, let's do it. This is a really cool idea. Let's go forth. Um, but looking back, I, I mean, we were underfunded. We were you know, we were um, underskilled, we didn't know what we were doing. And so, you know, that experience of building a tech company with no history in tech and no, you know, we, we didn't grow up in the internet era where we were part of, you know, Silicon Valley's growth or anything like that. We just, we, I was a DJ, I saw some technology, it was super cool. I acquired the company or 51% of the company and then we, we built it. And so doing that whole experience, we were part of the one of the very first accelerators in Canada called the Ryerson Digital Media Zone. And uh, it became the, the DMZ became the number one university accelerator in the world founders program in, in Toronto. We've also gone through uh, the Creative Destruction Lab, which is a very, very uh, high end technology 
uh, focused accelerator. So they take university technologies or like deep tech and help you commercialize it. So we went through that program. We went through the Founders Factory program in UK that was instrumental in kind of getting our deal room together and our marketing together and, and really focusing on where is this business going. So, you know, over the years, we've gone from making DJ technology and multimedia DJ, DJ technology to multimedia, you know, consumer technology. And now we have a 3D creation platform called Metaverse that allows anybody to build. So what happened was in 2014, we started what became Metaverse and we started building, uh, we started off with 360 videos where we, we created our own three, 360 rig, uh, literally 3D printed it and stuck GoPros in there and then had to stitch each frame by hand. It was a disaster, but it was super cool. And that was, a, that was what VR was in the day. And then we started, you know, doing AR stuff. Then we did like a lot of uh, VR kind of, you know, in VR, you know, computer-based VR stuff. And then, uh, you know, and then the, I don't know if you guys remember, but the, the Samsung phone that used to snap into your VR headset. The Gear, yeah. The Gear VR, that was super cool. And it was like, that was the moment where you're like, oh, I can bring this and do a demo for somebody without having to carry the laptop or not laptop, but it was like a big desktop at the time. Um, you know, with a, I think at the time it was a 1070, NVIDIA 1070 Ti that we had in there. So like we went from carrying around a, a you know, this giant computer and having, you know, it took about 30 minutes to set it up to being able to snap a phone and do a quick demo for people. And so we've gone through all of this. We've, we did about a hundred and about 105 projects for different brands around the world. Uh, we did eight world firsts um, over the course of, you know, let's say six years. And then we, uh, we actually started our own accelerator and we started XR Ignite, which is an accelerator for finding talent and, uh, and fostering it in the XR space. And um, when we did that, we actually ended up finding a company that we eventually ended up merging with. So they had, uh, it was called Cherry 3D, and they had their uh, 3D creation platform. It was very simple at the time. Like even the, the menu was like, you know, you could drag and drop a 3D object in and see it. But their claim to fame was they built their own rendering tech. And they built the most efficient rendering tech I've ever seen. So when they showed me a demo of this really high resolution Mercedes Benz, I, I was blown away. I was like, oh, that's super cool. It's built on Unity. And they said, no, 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 no. It's not built on Unity. It's built on our own tech. And so I, I kind of you know, took the step back. And almost like everybody now, they're like, you built your own game engine? Are you crazy? And so we, uh, we ended up merging the two companies back in 2019. We launched the product in 2020. And then we had... Uh, our amazing success right after we we ended up landing like Samsung as a client and Siemens Health and Years as a client and MasterCard as a client. And in kind of building these things, we we realized that what we had built was super special and could be used for all sorts of applications. So we really focused, you know, of course, when you when you're trying to do everything, you do nothing well. So what we tried to do is really focus on the, the use cases that would be the most impactful for what we did. And our long term vision is to build a new education system. So we focused on education and training, marketing, and retail. And the reason those three things uh, are kind of not so spread out as what you would think is that training and marketing is almost the exact same thing. If you make a 3D experience for training, it's almost the exact as what you would do with marketing. You just change the verbiage. You can change the little, you know, the text panels that pop up and stuff like this. So we had a, a theory that we could go in through training to a company, help them with their training, and take the exact same protocols and, and 3D models and stuff and bring it over to the marketing department. And that's exactly what happened. So we, we do a lot of work with Siemens Health and Ears and we do a lot of their training. We actually won best advance in education delivered through technology at the Brandon Hall Awards this year in 2023 with uh, Siemens Health and Ears. And so with that, we also now work with their marketing department to help them sell those products. So it wasn't you know, we, we thought we had a theory about it and then it actually ended up being true. So um, over the last couple of years, what we did though, because we launched the product in 2020, we actually uh, rebuilt the entire infrastructure. We took the rendering technology out, which was fantastic, and we set it aside and then rebuilt the infrastructure so that it's all built on Kubernetes now. So now it is fully enterprise scalable, enterprise security, multiplayer and multi-editor. So you can have multiple people working on the same project together. And that is a real game changer in my opinion because uh, everything we did, we, we made a decision maybe two years ago to stop working on apps and focus everything that we did on web. So our metaverse engine, the engine itself is on web, 
the players on web, everything is goes through the web browser. And, you know, we support the WebXR standard and the OpenGL standards as well and the OpenXR standards. So, you know, what we've built, I believe, is truly special because there are no downloads in the creation process or the consumption process. And a lot of brands, because we've done now 210 projects for different brands around the world, and a lot of brands, um, they have this kind of hard stop at, at the app because, you know, if you've ever had to build an app for whatever, like maybe it's a training app, let's say, you've got to build an iOS version, you've got to build an Android version, you have to build a tablet version, a desktop version, a VR version, and each one of those takes time. And they're all slightly different. And then you've got to publish to the App Store and wait for Apple and Google to approve you. And then if you monetize it, you have to pay them 30%. So there's this kind of roadblocks every step of the way. And then on a consumer facing application, when consumers hit an app download, there's like a 70% drop off when there's an app download to be had. So let's say you're spending you know, 100 grand to get 100,000 people, you spend a dollar a user, 100,000 people come in the door and you're losing 70% of those right away because they don't wanna download an app. So everything we do is web-based and I think that's what truly makes our platform uh, really special. That's fantastic. So I have this same philosophy that in order to have a real metaverse, right, uh, you, you have to have interoperability and it can't be a closed garden and mm. it has to live on the web. Just how is the iPhone wasn't a breakthrough of sending email, which was really awesome on the go, but BlackBerry did something, did something similar and it was, it was just fine. Um, they also had a keyboard versus Apple's touch. But the big breakthrough for me was being able to see um, websites on Safari on my iPhone <laughs> at any given time. That was for me that big, aha, I have to have this moment. Humanity. You know, we, we have, uh, we've built the metaverse already. It's the web. It, it, we are connected. Everybody has access to it on no matter what device you have. Even if you have an older device, you can access the web. Um, and so if the web is the unifier or is the metaverse and you add like, Let's say you add blockchain for the ability to own digital assets or, or control digital assets. Let's say you add AI, maybe it's uh, AI for text to text to text, but you know, open AI is delivered through the web. Midjourney is now delivered through the web. They actually, as of, I think yesterday, opened up their web-based uh, solution instead of being on Discord. You know, the web is super powerful. And now I think what happened was a lot of game engines like Unity and Unreal, they were built in a time where you couldn't do that kind of fidelity on the web. You only had access to single threading uh, processing. And so one of the, the major breakthroughs that we had last year is we figured out how to do multi-threading on the browser. And now you have the full power of your phone rendering over a browser. And this was a big, big step for us because otherwise you couldn't, you can't asynchronously load things, right? You can't do, um, you know, LOD systems and stuff like that without having, uh, having that ability. Now, can you explain to the audience, you know, why this wasn't be able, wasn't able to happen before? There was a recent report by Troy from A16Z. He talks about all the game, different game engines that support uh, the internet, and I was surprised you weren't on there, which you've been doing this for a long, long time. Shocked, um, actually. I was like, I'm looking at that list and I'm going, "It's a beautiful diagram of a bunch of game engines I've never heard of." <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Guys, Troy, if you're listening, <laughs> that's right. And it's kind of skewed in a way because they they rated it by GitHub stars, but you know, some companies like maybe some companies based in China are just a lot larger, and they can easily just ask their employees to. Put, put higher star ratings. So I don't think that was pretty fair, but can you explain why it's important? Um, what the technologies are now available? I mean, obviously the web GPUs to be able to support the processing, but what other factors of why VR isn't on the web today? Well, I think the multi-threading is the major one because if you want to do things like LOD or level of detail, so let's say for example, you're in a virtual space and you, uh, you see a, an image across the room, the image if you're rendering it at full frame rates from a distance, then you're rendering everything in your periphery full resolution. And the processors just don't have enough power to do that, right? So what we did is we created a thing called infinite LOD, meaning as I walk up to that picture, the closer I get to it, the higher resolution it renders. And so what we did was we took it a little bit step further and we said, okay, it's one thing to do the texture files, but can we do also the geometries? So now we do LOD for geometries and textures, and this allows us to put way more stuff into a space. For example, we're building a virtual mall in, like on our platform, and the virtual mall is massive. It's, 
uh, each floor, it's a hundred floors and each floor is a million square feet and a million square feet. You don't realize it until you're walking around using your avatar and you're like, holy crap, it takes me half an hour to get across the room. It's a massive space and we filled it with stuff. We're filling it with stores. And so in order to do that, in order to have an infinite virtual space, you need to have these new technologies that allow you to render asynchronously um, and load asynchronously. So I think, you know, by figuring that out, we're now able to deliver them all on an iPhone. And one of the things that I've noticed about all of the other platforms, even Spatial, which is kind of like a plugin for Unity to take Unity on the web, what I've noticed is that it doesn't work uh, on the web on a phone. They actually have to go through an app. So now you've bifurcated your system now. Now you've got a web-based system for people on desktop and maybe on VR. I don't know. They probably have an app for VR. And then they have an app for iPhone and they have an app for things. So if you're a brand and you send a customer to your website and you want it to be fully spatial, now they have to download an app if they go to a phone and the app is not yours. So you're bifurcating the whole systems. Um, and, and so we we were and are of the opinion that it has to be all 100% web. And it was very, very hard to make it work. But now it works. So Yeah, I, I really like what you did with the technology of being able to render um, what you see because those are the most expensive, the heavyweight, um, you know, big, huge 3D files to render them as you get closer. So you're not wasting all this processing. That That's really cool. And then I, um, I guess the next level of that would be foveated rendering, right? Being able to put on a pair of head, you know, a headset or glasses or goggles with eye tracking and, you know, really only rendering the 5% that your eyes see directly in front of your eyes, right? So as your eyes move around, if you look at your hand in the periphery, it's blurry. Like if I look at my hand over here in the left of my vision, it's blurry because your brain doesn't, doesn't focus on it, only focuses on that 5% in the middle. So I think that combined with, you know, foveated rendering, we're going to have, we're going to be able to push, you know, photorealistic everything um, over very, very low powered devices. And not to mention the devices are getting better too. So I think one of the things that, um, that people have tried to do in order to push like Unreal Engine onto the web is they've done a thing called pixel streaming. And pixel streaming is a cool solution, um, but it's dependent on the networks instead of the devices. So it, one, it's unpredictable. You can't predict the, the networks, they're different everywhere. And two, it's expensive. You're literally saying, oh, I've got a, you know, a 2090 or a 3090 Ti up in the cloud. And for every time you walk through this world or see this con configurator or do whatever, for every time you do that, it has to render in the cloud and stream that down real time. So if I turn around, it has to send a signal that I turned, process it and send it back down as a video signal. This is, um, this creates a latency that, you know, is not good for video games for sure not. Uh, and this is why you things, saw things like Stadia and these other things kind of go away because it was a cool idea that everybody, no matter of any device, could have the power of a, a full PC uh, rendering. But it's, you know, when rubber hits the road, it's not the best solution. And especially when the, that rubber uh, hits the road in your pocketbook, because at the very cheapest uh, pixel streaming right now is about $5 per user per hour of rendering time, um, which doesn't sound like a lot until you add it up. Uh, our system is $5 per user per year. So it's about 8,000 times less expensive to do on-device rendering than it is to do pixel streaming. Wow, that's super cool. Um, you have a diverse range of projects from the virtual photo booth to, um, you know, the, the emulator. That's a first, you know, DJ multi-touch tool uh, to the metaverse, which you were explaining offers so many different features. Not only is it being able to view and consume content in VR, but it's also uh, a, a place, a metaverse like the mall, the, a huge yeah. mall that you're creating that any store can then contribute and build uh, their own storefronts in, in a digital world. Uh, you also have the capabilities of um, showcasing specific products and product breakdowns where you can take a, a project and look at all the different specificities and customize like a shoe, for example, and see it blown up, see the different uh, angles. Um, and you also offer different tool sets. Um, it's very ambitious, Alan. Like what, what, what inspires your curiosity to ensure that this creativity is, you know, kind of controlled in all these diverse domains, you know, what's your inspiration there? 
I think my passion really is around creating creator tools. So making tools for creators, whether it's a musician that wants to build a, their own touch interface for Ableton or uh, you know a lighting designer who wants to create their own touch interface for, for lighting uh, or a virtual world creator who wants to create their own virtual worlds. Uh, at the end of the day, we make tools, professional tools for creators. Now, when I say professional tools, that usually implies that you have to know how to code. And one of the things that we've done with our Metaverse engine is we've tried to make it as low code as possible. And I, and I say low code, not no code, because when we originally kind of came up with the idea of this, it was all drag and drop, and we we hid the, 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 the coding, the, the JavaScript. And what we found was professionals will run away from no code systems. But uh, what we want to do is we want to open this up to as many people as possible. Our mission at Metaverse is Metaverse creation for everyone. It shouldn't just be, you know, some elite creators that know how to code and know how to, to do these things. It should be as drag and drop as possible and then have the pro features of fully coding so you can connect. Let's say, for example, you want to connect your virtual world to a business intelligence tool. Maybe you want to connect to uh, an order management system, like, uh, for example, a shoe, right? So once you've created your beautiful shoe, it has to go to an online system to say this is the you know this is the, the color schemes that I want and the size and order it and has to go to like an order management system. And so the ability to be on the web and connect to any other web-based system is truly revolutionary. I mean we can connect to you know we've connected to learning management systems, content management systems, order management systems, we've connected to uh, other cloud systems. Our system the 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 metaverse uh, game engine 3D creation platform is completely cloud agnostic. So, for example, Siemens Healthineers is one of our clients. They are hosting it all on their own cloud. So it's on-premise cloud, and so that we don't see any of their data because they have a they have you know rules against um, against sharing data with with outside of Germany. So our our enterprise clients have the uh, ability to host themselves on any cloud infrastructure. And for, for clients that don't want to host it and don't care, then we just host it, you know, based on our own thing. But the flexibility of having that is truly magnificent. It is really what sets us apart. This is a truly enterprise-grade system that can be used for anything from a simple game all the way through to training, you know, uh, people on the maintenance and repair of medical devices. Do you think now that we have this third generation of the Quest, making it very portable. Um, recent news of Windows Mixed Reality, rest in peace, they, they kind of discontinued that, but at the same time, the hardware and the controls weren't there, but then it was expected, but it's always sad to hear, you know, tech giant products pulling away from, uh, you know, their, their mixed reality or virtual reality initiatives. And then we have uh, Google and Samsung getting into the mix. I think um, that's gonna be interesting. Yeah, we'll see. We'll, we'll see. Um, it would be great if Google just focused on the software and Samsung focused on the hardware. That would you know, be it. You can imagine. I mean, they're kind of doing that with the phones. You know, we'll, we'll see. When I was at Samsung, you know, uh, you know, playing with the big G, you know, they, they have their own domain. Samsung has their own, you know, and everyone Samsung's really good at hardware. They're great I mean, at the hardware. I mean, really to be honest, they're the best they're camera sensors. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I love the phone, uh, the Fold. The Fold is, is next generation stuff. But um, with these new headsets and, and accessibility, do you find like companies like Siemens, enterprise companies ready to adopt? What are some of the friction points do you see um, coming ahead for, for future startups that want to go into enterprise today? What, what are still some of the challenges you, you, you've noticed? What we've found is that most of our enterprise clients are not ready for VR. They want it to work on the devices that people already have in their hands. So tablets, computers, uh, desktop, that type of thing. Um, I would say almost all of their employees and, and customers have a phone, computer, or tablet so they can access it. When you move to VR, obviously there's some things in VR that you can't do any any other way, right? Hands-on training, these types of things. What we've found is the, the brands that we work with are just not, they're not quite there yet. Uh, and, and the stumbling blocks are around you know, the hardware um, being available, but not distributed. And then, you know, how do you do, you know, uh, hardware maintenance? How do you distribute it to your employees? 
Uh, and most people, like if you look at the usage of VR, uh, let's say there's, I don't know, there's probably 50 million VR headsets in the world, but the weekly use is actually quite low. And uh, VR headset sales declined 8% in 2023. It actually went backwards. And so what I think we're going to see is we're going to see, you know, very, very specific point pointed use cases. So maybe uh, it's an onboarding for, for a team. Let's say, for example, you're, you're a new employee on Accenture and they send you a headset and you can go check out the office because now you're, you're, you know, everybody's working from home. You're not really going to an office anymore. So having the ability to, to meet people in virtual spaces is really compelling. Uh, the ability to train people on how to do interviews or public speaking, these types of things are really powerful with uh, that. You have, you know, Tailspin and other platforms like that. Um, there's one called something lobster and, uh, you know, being able to use it for training that way, but there's still a barrier to entry. And, and one of the craziest things about VR that I, you know, cause we've done thousands of demos of, of VR to people. Um, one thing that we didn't really factor in at all until we realized was women don't like to put it on because of their makeup and hair like a little tiny thing like that. And you're like, but it has so much value. And they're like, but my hair, <laughs> you know, and you, you don't, you don't think of these things until, you, you know, you try to do a thousand demos and then you're like, oh, there's, you know, half of the people of the world don't want to put it on because they don't want to smear their makeup and, and mess their hair. So these are real societal issues with these technologies. And, you know, the hardware getting better, faster, cheaper, and more content that's one part of it, but the social norms of wearing a headset is still a problem. Um, and I think what we're going to see with Apple, with the Vision Pro coming out, is that you're going to find really high-end um, use cases. For example, design. I think uh, architects are going to use this uh, a lot because they've got really high fidelity. You've got the ability to have multiple massive screens in front of you. You, you have the ability to collaborate with people globally. <clears throat> globally. And so... Uh, I think there's a huge opportunity here, but I think it, it's going to start in very specific niche use cases. Yeah, I, I totally agree with that. I think um, going back to your point, though, regarding sales being down, I don't necessarily know because I saw that status data point as well. I don't think necessarily the interest of VR is down. It's just sales because no. if you look at the sales for uh, VR headsets with the eight, eight week span, I'm, I'm talking about like the holiday season from October and November, sales of VR headsets in the US were 271 million uh, and it was a 42% jump, uh, I believe from the 191 million generated the same period last year. So, you know, it's about 80 million. You have to also take into account that the, the pricing is double. So for example, Yes, they're selling less headsets, but the headsets are double the price. So the revenue per headset has gone gone up dramatically. And you know, uh, the Quest Three I think is what five ninety nine, something like that. And Quest Two is two ninety nine. So it's almost double the price. So it is double the price. So people are willing to pay more for that higher quality. That uh, and I really what you're paying for uh, with the Quest Three is that pass through. It's crazy. Yeah, it's dynamite. We we've always been Incredible. wishing well, for that. Thing, like oh my god, there's like. <laughs> the roof I was like what is happening yeah it, was really cool. it reminded me of the first time i played with um the microsoft hololens mm, and that, yeah, yeah yeah you know things were blasting through the walls and stuff and you know it was the first time i had ever seen like somebody combining the physical world and the in the virtual it, it was super cool and and the quest 3 is just magical it really is magical. I mean, I worked on the Presence platform when I was at Meta, and it was really special because when I first worked at, in augmented reality at the at the first Meta, the, I call it the OG Meta or the Y Combinator uh, meta meta. I have a picture with the Meta 2. Yeah. Well, I think that's where we met, Alan. I don't know if you yeah. remember, but I gave you a demo. It was like SVVR, was it? Yeah, it was a long time ago. Uh, or it was at AW. I don't remember. But, uh, I don't know it was, if it was SVVR or AWE. It was one yeah, of the very, very one first. One of those. Yeah. In, in the hotel room, you guys had it set up. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, for me, Presence Platform for the Quest 3 was, it's something that we've always wanted to get to because, you know, it really is the first way to start even for developers to start building, um, you know, AR. Like, you know, full-scale, full full field of view AR. I mean, we're not yep. there yet, but uh, to your point, it is magical. I, I do Fit XR 
uh, in mixed reality. It's not as fun as VR because I think the, you know, of course there's so many years of development for the VR application. You know, you, you just can't compete you're just apples and oranges right now, but when you do it in your real room and you're punching these spheres, you're like, wow, I'm in the future, man. I did it. I used the, the quest pro, which, you know, the past two is okay. It's not as good as the quest three, but I remember I put it on my living room and one of my colleagues, Karen was in my living room as her avatar. And I, I could see my whole room and I, and I was talking to her and she said to me, she goes, cause I, I actually, it was my wife, Julie, it was her headset. So I was actually puppeteering her avatar. And she goes, I know before you even spoke a word that it wasn't Julie, because the way you stand and, and how tall you are is different than, than Julie's. Oh, that's so weird. <laughs> and I thought, wow. I mean, yeah. 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 That's so true. Differently. Right. Yeah. Everybody has different, um, you know, movements. That's right. Hey, I didn't want to switch topics, but I thought this was really cool. Uh, your daughter, Abby, she's also an entrepreneur. She had uh, this inspiration when she saw your wife or her mother, um, you know, with this tan line on her sandals. And I'm probably butchering this whole thing, but she said, wouldn't it be cool if you actually had a tan line from your sandals from the sun and it was shaped in a heart or, you know, I'm butchering this, but you could probably tell it a lot better. But um so did you, help? Knows that, you know when you wear sandals, you get the sandal tan, right? You get that you know strap tan. And my daughter, we, we put her in inventors camp and, you know, inventors camp, they, they basically got a toilet paper roll and each square of toilet paper represented a purchasing power. And then they had things like, uh, you know, uh, pipe cleaners and tape and all these things that they needed to build a solution, but they had to spend their toilet paper roll to buy the, the parts. And then they, they had a, a, one of them was like this big fish fishery. They had to get fish out of the ocean and da, 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 whatever. But it taught them the, the whole idea behind budgeting, innovation, inventing, and these types of things. And when she was finished that course, it was about a week long, um, she came in, she said, I, I have a great idea for shoes. Like, wouldn't it be better to have a heart-shaped tan line on your feet instead of just strap tan? And so we worked with her for like a year, and she ended up developing the Love Sandal, which was shoes that leave a heart-shaped tan line on your feet. And she sold 3,000 pairs of shoes. She did a, a successful Indiegogo campaign. She was sponsored by UPS. Um, it was super cool. Like everybody rallied around her. Even, you know, the company Aldo, the shoe company. Yeah, the of course. Aldo, uh, helped her design them. And it was super cool. We, we drove out to Aldo in Montreal. And yeah, it was a, even the, the, the president, the CEO of, um, uh, of Shopify, uh, Toby and, and Harley, they helped her build her first Shopify site. So it was like a, a whole community coming together to help this kid, you know, develop this thing. And then when she, when she went into high school, she's like, I don't want to do it anymore. <laughs> so, <laughs> Well, you know, I think that <laughs> spirit of entrepreneurship and, and, you know, your mentorship and as an early mentor at Techstars and also a lot of the, you know, startup help that you do, especially in Canada, you're an XR board advisor for South by Southwest. You know, what advice do you give for aspiring entrepreneurs entering the XR space? Just probably how the advice you gave to your daughter, Avi. Wow. I think the first thing is, you know, before you dive into starting a business and starting a, you know, an innovative company, because there's a difference between business ownership and entrepreneurship. Entrepreneurship, you're literally creating something new for the world. Um, you're creating a new technology or, uh, you know, something that scales globally. I think that people get them mixed up sometimes because, you know, I can start a, a nail place and it's not really an entrepreneurship thing. Um, so I think know what you're getting into. Try your best to stay employed by somebody else. So while you're doing your side hustle, while you're getting that thing off the ground, maybe try to stay employed um, so that you still have this kind of safety net. Because I would say 90 to 95% of all startups fail. Um, so there's a very, very big chance that you're going to fail and that's okay. It's part of the deal, but you have to try it. So I think, you know, stay employed when it, as long as you can. And eventually, you know, you, when your side hustle becomes big enough to, to fund you and, and keep you paid, uh, then, then switch over. That would be my first advice. The second advice, especially for XR in general is try as many things as possible. Get a VR headset, Get, you know, just go to all the meetups, go to the VRAR Association. You can join that for free. Uh, join, if you're a woman, you can join XR Women, which is uh, Julie's group of uh, women in, v in virtual augmented mixed reality. Join these communities, 
learn from the best in the world, but try everything. Um, there's nothing like putting on a headset and trying, you know, um, Space Pirate Trainer or, you know, these old school games like Beat Saber is still, I think, one of the number one games in the entire thing, yep. right? So, um, uh, what is it? Uh, what's the, the one, Hot Heat or whatever, when you fly around? Super Hot. Super Hot, that one there. That, that's a phenomenal way of, uh, of learning, you know, teleportation uh, and game mechanics and stuff like this because... There's a lot, a lot, a lot of, when we started, there was no examples. We had to make it up. We're like, okay, what happens when you press the thumbstick and go that way? You're like, oh, that, ooh, that doesn't feel good. <laughs> what happens if you fly the camera straight up on an angle? You know, what happens if you turn the cam camera? You know, because we were using cameras at the time. And uh, I, I, <laughs> I am the guinea pig for all of the things. I get really motion sickness uh, really badly with VR. So um, I've always been the one to be like, put it on, test it, and like, nope, that's not going to work. So, you know, back in the day, there were no best practices, but now there are best practices. So go and find, you know, go try everything. Go to the meetups, that type of thing. I think that's the most important. Uh, I, I wanted to just touch on one thing. Based on what we taught our daughter and going through kind of, you know, multiple levels of entrepreneurship, starting, you know, new things like in the touchscreen and metaverse and, and starting things from scratch and building global platforms that are used by some of the biggest companies in the world, we learned a few things. And one of the things that we learned is that our school systems, uh, the current school systems, were never designed for exponential growth of everything. We have hit a turning point in humanity where AI, blockchain, um, XR, uh, molecular biology, synthetic biology, quantum computing, all of this stuff is coming online as fast as you can possibly imagine. And our school systems are still sitting everybody in you know nice neat little neat rows and you know and making them regurgitate facts so one of the things that we want to do is is really build a new education system and if you look at everything we've done uh, with metaverse it's all been in service to create a platform that can be accessible by any device anywhere in the world and allow people to show up as avatars to learn and grow without having to worry about you know uh, social um, problems like, uh, you know, sex or race or location, geography, socioeconomic problems. How can we inspire and educate the next generation of people um, to think and act in a socially, economically and environmentally sustainable way as we grow innovations for the future? And I think the only way that humanity gets out of, you know, this kind of slump of where we are right now, where we're, we're growing, everything's growing so fast and nobody knows what to do is to prepare the next generations through a new education system. And so our ultimate goal is to build that. It's gonna be called the Unlimited Awesome Academy, and it will use the technologies that we built at Metaverse to deliver that content at a global scale. So I'm really excited about that. I love the name and I couldn't agree more. Um, I, I suggest everyone to check out your TED Talk because I, I know you, you go into detail about this. And I couldn't agree more that, Wow, what a broken model in terms of education. I also advise for a startup 10K. They're, they're really trying to revolutionize science education with AI. And you're 100% right. I mean, the reason why we have these rows of student desks and one teacher giving you, you know, their sermon or their philosophy of, of education was because, you know, in the old days, you had to get people off of the farm and child labor to at least get them on a routine schedule to at least learn some of the basics. But come on, like we've advanced so far. We have like little screens and computers in our pockets. Like we've you got to change it. We spend an enormous amount of time on Netflix. Uh, and, and so education is competing with three things. It's competing with social media. It's competing with AAA games and Hollywood movies. Good luck. Good luck. <laughs> and, and the education system is not using any technology. Like, you know, if anything, they're banning it in the schools. And you're like, okay, well, the one thing that could help you, you just decided not that you don't want. So instead of trying to fix the existing systems, we're just building a new one from scratch. We're going to build a new system. It's going to be global in nature that you can access from anywhere. And one of the things that I realized with education is that when you go to school, let's say my daughter goes to a high school just around the corner, the only thing she has in common with the people in her class is that they all live within, you know, five miles of each other. That's it. There's no, it, they didn't match make them. So what we're, we're going to be doing is we're going to be using this new uh, AI that allows you to find synergies with people. So we're going to tap into your social media and say, oh, you love flying uh, RC cars or flying RC planes and you love RC planes. 
there's a connection between you two. Even though you may live in, you know, in Africa and you may live in New York, put the two together. So we're going to be able to bring people together in ways using these suggestion algorithms and stuff. So right now, uh, you know, Amazon uses algorithms to sell you more things you don't need. And Netflix, you know, uses the same type of suggestion algorithms to give you more movies to watch. Well, what if we use the same technologies that they're deploying at scale to give you better knowledge and better ways to learn for you personally? And instead of having a company where it's just a profit motive, we're just trying to profit, the students actually will own this company. So once they hit a certain level, they'll actually become equity stakeholders in the company. So now they're actually working on themselves and the impetus for the whole program is to help them in the long term. It's not to help a bunch of investors. Even though we have investors, we're doing fixed rates of return. So it's very similar to the OpenAI model where we have a bunch of investors, they have a fixed uh, set of returns. So you're going to get, you know, the first uh, the first investors in get a 20x return, then a 10x return, then five and three and so on. Um, so it's really around making a platform that is the best possible thing for the students, not to try to sell them more stuff. And that right. to me is, that's how it should be. And we're going to do this. And, you know, my goal is to build a trillion dollar company and give it all away. So we'll see how that works. That's fantastic. I think education is so important. And we already know the stats regarding more engagement with immersive technology. There's more retention, it, except that, you know, to your point, what you had said earlier, it's still the early days. Like it, Macintosh, it penetrated the classrooms. And when people got out of high school or elementary school, when they were experienced the Macintosh, of course, they became, you know, maybe even Apple fans. But it took a long time. But education, I think, is that killer use case. You know, why do you think it's been t it's takes so long to where education has been adopting, you know, just even iPads, like I iPads probably just started getting into curriculum, maybe like the last five, six years, right? Is it the cost factor? Is it the IT support? What, what do you think it is the, the biggest challenge? The education systems, and I say systems because they're a little bit different in different parts of the world, but they all pretty much basically do the same thing, right? They were designed in the 1800s. And they were designed to not change. They were designed to stay steadfast in the, in the face of all changes. Education should not change. And so it was designed that way from the ground up. Whereas what we're designing will, is designed with change in mind. It's designed to evolve, you know, to use data to give better results. And so I don't think the education systems can change. I think they're stuck. Um, and I, and I think it's, you know, Governments have done a great job at educating, you know, a lot of people and getting people to a certain level of thing. And we're not, we're not attempting to replace the existing systems at all. What we're doing is we're saying, what about all of the, um, the soft skills that are normally put on the onus of the parents? So things like mindfulness, gratitude, positivity, deep breathing, yoga, exercise, but also marketing, sales, financial planning, investing. These are skills that most successful humans have and they've built maybe their parents were entrepreneurs and they taught them but what happens if your parents never had that opportunity so you have this perpetual cycle of people not learning these soft skills and then we call them soft skills but they're really the skills that are going to be required in an age of exponential growth of everything yeah we you know in school you would think that they would tell you how to balance your checkbook and you oh know God, understand just, interest on your credit cards yeah, sorry, in Canada here, they just passed a financial literacy course that that spans more than one credit. So normally it's like a credit, you you know, you, you learn how to pay taxes. But now it's going to be uh, all the way through high school. So that just got passed and we're in 2023. And we're like, oh, yeah, maybe we should teach people about financial and, you know, things. <laughs> yeah. You know, things just move a little bit slow. I mean, what's that saying that... Um... You know, change always comes. You 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 underplan what can happen. You overplan what can happen in a year, and and underestimate uh, what can happen in ten years. Yeah. Um, so imagine now. So right now, Julie and I we're in year, let's say eight, because we're going into twenty twenty four. So we're in year eight of a thirty year plan. We we set out a plan to build a new education system. We built Metaverse as the foundational technology behind that, so that we can 
now distribute this technology. We can have people from anywhere in the world appear as an avatar on any device anywhere in the world. Like our system works in China, works in Africa, works everywhere. Now, not every kid's going to have a, a smartphone able, you know, capable of rendering this type of tech. So we're also going to do an SMS version of it as well. But, um, you know, I, I think having a long, long-term goal really, it, it eludes most people in the world. You know, most people think quarter to quarter. And so, you know, we have this lack of long-term thinking. And, and I think we need to fix that and, and, and really give people hope for the future because I think innovation uh, and, and uh, you know, innovation and technology is really going to be the driver for the future of humanity. Yeah. And the subset of that is sustainability and being a responsible business. And, and that's also something that really economic, social, you, environmental. You focus on. Yeah. yeah. Economic, social, and, environmental. And, you know, we, we now, if you look at capitalism, it only factors in one thing, profit. And it's the only thing, it's only economic. And yes, you need profits. You, if you don't profit, your business will fail. If, if a project runs out of money, it will, it will die. And so you need the economic, but you also need the social aspect of it. Why are we building companies that make money for one person or two people or a small board of investor, board of directors or a small you know, group of investors? Um, it's not really helping a lot of people. And you know, maybe it employs a lot of people, but ultimately with AI, autonomous systems, robotics, we're gonna see a massive, massive shift in employment over the next decade. And, you know, things are going to happen over the next decade that we couldn't even contemplate. If you look back, you know, look back, you mentioned the iPhone. Before the iPhone, there was no app store. So app developer wasn't a thing. And now, how many people are app developers in the world? Millions? So we couldn't have foreseen that. And what is going to be the next big thing? Like, we, you know, last year we had ChatGPT come online and then it was like, oh, you're going to be a prompt engineer. And you're like, mm, maybe. <laughs> Maybe ChatGPT is the prompt engineer. I don't know. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's fascinating right, that... Code? The computer writes it for you now. <laughs> Copilot. Yeah. yeah. With Copilot. I mean, isn't it amazing that it's so new? I always say it's life after AI. You know, you know I don't know if you've been following like Gen... Um, run, runway gen where, where they have a new AI model where you can actually create videos. And it's really, it hallucinates a lot. It kind of reminds me of how we actually dream where a lot it's of the images trippy. are distorted. Yeah. And it's trippy. You know, if you, when you physically dream, you, you'll see faces that turn into other faces or backgrounds that meld, you can't read. I mean, it's very similar to the way AI responds today. And, um, you know, I think that that needs to be understood that like, Hey, we're on to something here. And do you feel like this new AI generation, like, are, did we really enter a new paradigm? You know, are we going to use this for the force of good, the force of evil? What's your take? Sorry, November 20th, 2022, when, um, when ChatGPT came online was a paradigm shift in humanity. Um, I stayed up all night that night and played on this thing. I was like, Oh my God, I sent my kids a note. I said, look, you're never going to write another essay again. You're going to use this, but make sure you understand what you're submitting um, because it, it fundamentally changed the contract, the, the social contract of humanity. I mean, I, I use ChatGPT every single day now. I use MidJourney to create my images. I even have a blog to, to your point around, is this going to affect humanity in negative ways? I have a blog called AI versus humans.ai. So AI vs humans.ai. And it's at, I think I'm at up to 210 now or 209 posts of all the things that can go wrong. So for example, they're now robocallers, AI robocallers that are personalized. They can call you and say, Hey, David, have you considered voting for X? So politicians are already using AI to, to, you know, push their agendas. Um, just yesterday, Rite Aid got, uh, got fined by the FTC for using facial recognition to identify shoplifters improperly. Wow. Now, Rite Aid's got other problems. They're going bankrupt anyway, but yeah, fact that they're using this technology to identify people uh, who are shoplifting who are not shoplifting. So, uh, you know, there is um, a plethora of challenges and problems that this technology creates, but that is a small, small percentage of the greater good that these technologies will create. So I think, yes, there are real serious societal problems with this technology. However, 
the good will outweigh the bad. And as long as we know what the unintended consequences of this technology could be, we can then try to try to create systems that prevent the worst things from happening. Yeah. And I'm an optimist, you know, being a, you know, someone who works in technology, I see the benefits of what technology brings to society, but Hey, we've got to be ethical and we've got to be responsible. But at the same time, this is something that came out of Pandora's box and with people pushing AGI, you know, you know, general artificial intelligence where, you know, it, it thinks for itself, where I even have some thoughts when I do work with ChatGPT that it is thinking, that it's actually, you know, processing the information just like a human. Um, what are your thoughts on the whole idea of ethics around AI and, you know, how it's being, uh, how it's not being managed at all today? What, what are your thoughts on that? In January this year, I wrote a, a piece called the, the Metaverse Manifesto, uh, Ethics of the Metaverse. And you know, I haven't sat down and written one for AI, perhaps I should. I personally think that we need some sort of Hippocratic oath for software developers. So right now, you know, doctors, let, let's say I, I go through medical school, I have to do a Hippocratic oath and I have to be part of an association that allows me to practice medicine. And if I violate those rules, they remove my license. Well, a doctor may, like a very busy doctor could impact the lives of a thousand people. A software developer could impact the lives of a billion people and they have no regulation and no uh, oath that they have to take. So I think we should start with some sort of oath to do no harm, to uh, to be careful. Um, and I think what we're seeing, like, we, you know, XR Women and, you know, we belong to the WebXR Awards group as well. And we're constantly having these, these conversations around ethics. I, I went to a neuroethics um, conference put on by uh, my buddy Rolando at... Um, at Princeton. And we were talking about, you know, what happens when we're wearing glasses that know where we're looking, that can read our minds, that know what we're going to do in the future because it can predict things. Predictive analytics is, you know, is, is becoming really good. So what happens with that data? Who owns the data? How do we store it? How do we make sure that it doesn't get in the hands of bad actors? Like we saw this year, 23andMe give up 4 million people's data on their, on their genetic yeah, I feel like, like I got robbed and no one no one does anything about it. And this is a constant thing. Like, you know, it used to be, oh my God, there was a, a company, they lost our data. Ooh, it's really bad. But now it's like, yeah, okay, whatever. We've yeah. kind of shrugged it off. And so I believe that ethics has to be taught, uh, you know, and enforced, you know, and we can't rely on governments to do it. Um, they're just too slow. And so... I think it has to be maybe taught at school. You know, you look at it even like OpenAI open and, and some of the other large language model companies, they've all but shuttered their ethics departments. You know, they've they've cut costs and, and you know, forced those people out. And you're like, maybe that was not the best idea. Mm. Maybe we should keep those people in place, especially with things like QSTAR on the, on the horizon where, you know, you had a revolt and the CEO fired from a company because they're moving too fast. Like... Yeah, I don't know, man. I, I really, I hope and pray that the people who control these models really have a, a way to turn it off or slow it down. Or I, I don't know the answer to it, to be honest. I, I mean, I was one of the signatories, uh, the first signatories for that pause for AI. Uh, I was, you know, signatory number like 540 or something. So, you know, I do believe that this technology is super powerful. We're dealing with fire and we don't know the full ramifications of it. So just if you're listening to this podcast and you're making these technologies or using them, think about the unintended consequences that could possibly arise. And they're not easy to think about. You know, nobody ever thought that a social media platform could sway elections. Nobody thought that uh, a simple photo sharing app could cause kids to kill themselves. You know, these are unintended consequences that nobody, no matter how smart you are, didn't see in the future. But I think we have to look into the future and, and try to guess what things could possibly go wrong and, and try to mitigate those. Um, something very, very simple, such as the data behind large language models is trained mostly on white male subjects. Uh, you know, if you type in a beautiful woman in mid-journey, it gives you a white woman 99% of the time. Why? It thinks only white women are beautiful? It's ridiculous, but 
this is how these models are built. So we need to inject some sort of ethics into them somehow. I, I agree a hundred percent. You know, I, I worked at leap motion and we were doing hand tracking at the time and it was a input for virtual reality and the people training the models for hands, the skin tones were mostly light skinned. And so every time that anyone of color or darker skin would actually try to use our device, it wouldn't register. And it was almost like almost almost racist. It was, it was terrible. And, and I couldn't agree more that ethics and, and this understanding of why it's important needs to start being part of our communications. We need to, you know, rally and make sure that we're unified in this concern, working at different tech companies as startup founders. I think it's a great segue. I just joined the XR Guild. I, I deploy you yep. to come join us. I don't know well. if you remember. Are you part a member? Beginning. Okay, fantastic. Okay, cool. So yeah, XR Guild is, a, is another group. It's it's free to join, but you get to actually have this dialogue with like-minded individuals that have these concerns. It's uh, xrguild.org. Um, you know, I, I just wanted to also... Motion, you must know Alex Colgan. Oh, of course I know Alex. Yeah, D Alex, Alex is I, a Canadian. I, I messaged him. I said, I'm going to be late. We had a meeting at two. <laughs> oh, that's <laughs> so cool. It's all over our uh, community and marketing at Metaverse. Oh, get out of here. That is so cool. Yeah, I haven't we're, talked to Alex in years. Five years. Please tell him I say hello. I, I need to catch up with that guy. Yeah, I will. We'll leave it in the podcast because he, he deals <laughs> with all, my, all of our marketing. So he'll he'll see it. <laughs> oh, fantastic. What's up, Alex? How's it going, buddy? Up, uh, yeah, I remember working with him and, and he was in Canada all the time. So, you know, whenever I think of Canada, I think of Alex. So what's up, Alex? He's yeah. in the East Coast. <laughs> That's right. Um you know, I, I just wanted to end on this note um, on your departure from LinkedIn. You know, that, that was surprising for me because I get a lot of my news from you, um, you know, but you, you recently called it, you know, not a friendly place. Can, can you elaborate more on that? So after I posted that, so I posted LinkedIn as hell and, and I posted a, a post basically saying, you know, I've been working really hard to bring value to LinkedIn. I post every single day. I haven't, I've never missed a day. And the algorithms, they keep changing them. Like I used to get 10,000 views on every post and now I get like a hundred. And so the algorithms are, are not, they keep changing. There's no rhyme or reason. Um, the, the people at LinkedIn, I've been kicked off the platform 12 times because it says, you know, you're a bot, you're using bots, which I'm not, I'm just very prolific, prolific on it. And so I just got burnt out of it and it didn't seem like, like anybody was seeing it or, you know, cared. And so I, I posted that I'm going to take a break from LinkedIn. And actually the response has been overwhelming. I got a call from a friend of mine, DP Prakash, uh, last night, he called me, he said, listen, I, you need to listen to me. He said, you know, you bring a lot of value to this network. A lot of people view it, your positivity, like he just, he basically lectured me for 30 minutes on why I should stay on LinkedIn and keep, keep going. And now, you know, you're, you're saying this as well. And I really have to think because it's not about me and my ego. It's about, you know, being part of the community. And so I, I really have some soul searching to do. I'm going to take a week off uh, of LinkedIn and, um, and really think about how I can maybe just bring more value instead of, uh, you know, just posting little things every day. Maybe I'll do a, you know, a more comprehensive thing or something. I just, uh, I didn't realize how important it is to a lot of people that I share these things. And so I guess my selfishness um, and my ego got in the way of, of really what the community wants and needs. So uh, I'm going to do some soul searching over the next week and, and hopefully I'll, uh, I'll come back on LinkedIn and keep sharing. Cool. You know, I, I'd love for you to have a turnaround attitude. And I think a lot of people, judging by the comments that are on that post. There's like uh, 130 comments. I was like, yeah, it's oh, fantastic. <laughs> I was like, ah, I guess maybe somebody people do see it. Yeah, that's right. I think the problem is that everyone gets overloaded and it's just really hard to engage with so much content. It's coming at you in every direction now. And there's a lot of AI generated content coming out now. And I'm just like, you know, I can tell when something's written by ChatGPT. We just had a client submit a, a proposal to us. They said, we want this thing to be built. And I could just tell just from the formatting and how it was, I was like, oh my God, you literally put in a very small amount of information and had ChatGPT write us a brief. And I'm like, well, okay. You know, this is the future of the world where ChatGPT just writes crappy stuff to everybody. It's like, ugh. 
So <laughs> I've seen a lot of just crap content coming out. And how do you compete with the deluge of crappy content? Yeah, you know, I, I'm I'm guilty of that as well. You know, just because it's you such too. an easy I, I tool. For sure, I was like, yeah. <laughs> It's it's just so convenient, but yeah, I, I think it, I, I try hard to actually, you know, review the content, try to add in my personality of like what I'm really trying to communicate. Um, it does make me more efficient, but I do see the the avalanche of AI generated content because I, I noticed the formatting as well, the specific emojis that they use and it's the specific very, language. Very obvious that it's yeah. changing. <laughs> It's writes like a grade 11 high school student. You're like, yeah, that, cool that's if you right. want to write like a grade 11 high school student. You know, when I write an article, I just did an article in September about the lifetime value of 3D assets across an enterprise. It took me a month of research plus maybe two weeks of writing plus another week of, you know, editing back and forth to, you know, and then you put in all the links and like it took me, let's say two months to write that article, but it's very comprehensive. But like, you know, it takes 30 seconds for somebody to, to write something really crappy and put it out there. Does their content get seen more than mine? I don't know. Is like, is it, you know, sheer amount versus quality? I, I don't know. And so huh. if it takes me two months to write an article like that, does anybody even read it anymore? <laughs> like, That's interesting. Do you think the algorithm is favoring just someone who creates more content and it's really dense? And then it favors it because they think it's more valuable. I don't know. I, I, all I know is, you know, I have last year I did 11 million views on LinkedIn. This year I'll do about 10 million. So I've lost uh, like a million views over a year, which for some reason, I don't know why I can't, hmm. I haven't done anything differently. Um, hmm. Well, I, I have, I've been posting more to be honest, but you um, don't get paid by LinkedIn. Like, I don't get those... anything from LinkedIn. I don't even yeah. kick me off the damn platform all the time. Yeah, if you're and, on YouTube, I mean, that would have translated or Spotify. I mean, that, that would have translated never been cash. Named, like a top, you know, voice on LinkedIn or anything like that. I've never got any pat, you know, pat on the back or anything like that. Which huh. I don't really care. But like, don't stop kicking me off the platform. Yeah, like, that's a bummer. That yeah, sucks. It does suck. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, you're like, okay, great. What do I do today? I, uh, oh, my LinkedIn's locked out. Yeah. Well, you know, um, let's end on a positive note, sure. Alan. Um, Always. In yes, yes. You know, I'm I'm really uh, in tune with your um, messaging around gratitude and meditation. I also practice the Wim Hof method and and really try to get my meditation on. Um, what are your um, New Year's resolutions? Because we're mm -hmm. getting close to there. And what are you looking forward to for 2024 for Alan Smithson? So 2024 is going to be a big year for us. Um, I'm basically going on a fundraising tour for the education platform for the Unlimited Awesome Academy. So if there are any investors watching this, uh, we're going to be raising the first $10 million in 2024. So that's, uh, that's a big one for me. And um, really figuring out the governance of that because... You know, creating a new governance system that allows for, uh, you know, for AI to be part of the decision making, but also spreads the decision making over a board of directors, a board of advisors, and the students themselves need to be part of the decision making process. And how do we do that in a in a very transparent and uh, you know and prolific way? Um, for me, that's kind of the focus this year. Growing metaverse is obviously a, a huge part of this, so. We're going to be launching them all uh, in 2024, so I'm very excited about that. We're going to be uh, announcing the first 10 brand partners in uh, in January at the National Retail Federation show. Uh, so the mall will be coming out. We also have a new product that will be coming out very soon. I just got finished um, like yesterday called Metopia, and it's uh, my friend who knows nothing about tech. I sent it to her, and she goes, oh, so it's Zoom with avatars. So hmm. basically, you know, it's like a world you can run around with your avatar and it has all the functionality of Zoom, screen share and all these things, but you can access it from any device. So Metopia will be uh, released in 2024. The mall will be released in 2024. And really what we want to do is put the Metaverse engine in the hands of as many amazing creators as possible and let them do it. Because as much as we love what we build and we build cool stuff, it's not until you see what other creators in the world can do with your tools that it becomes very exciting. For me, the 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 moment where, remember the emulator, the big glass touchscreen, we mm. gave one to uh, Mike Shinoda from Linkin Park. Mm. And he came back and he, and he 
showed me. He's like, here, what do you think? And it was just a bunch of buttons on a screen. And I was like, what is it? And he goes, what do you mean what it is? It's a piano. It looked nothing like a piano. It looked like something out of Star Trek. And he started yeah. playing it like a piano. Wow. And so what artists will do with creative tools is truly magnificent. And for me, that's the most exciting. That's what excites me is not what we can build, but the tools that we can enable others to, to build on. And that's truly the special part of building a, a creation platform like Metaverse. That is so cool. I'm looking forward to all the updates. Hopefully I'll see them on LinkedIn. If you go into another platform, just go ahead and make sure you tag me. Alan, that's fantastic. Where can people find you? LinkedIn? <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. Um, yeah, you can just look me up on LinkedIn, Alan Smithson. But you can also email me, Alan, A-L-A-N, at Metaverse. And Metaverse is spelled M-E-T-A-V-R-S-E dot -E com. So it's Alan at Metaverse dot com. Feel free to email me. I've got a whole team, uh, you know, that can help with whether you're looking to create something on, on the engine itself or you're looking to put a brand in the mall or you're looking to use Metopia, those things there. And also, if you're interested in Unlimited Awesome Academy and investing in the future of education, uh, reach out to me directly, alan at metaverse.com, and I'm happy to, uh, to get you in there as well. Alan, thank you so much. Any, part, any other parting words or uh, happy holidays? I have one last thing. Be good to each other, be kind, and spread love. The world needs more love at this time right now where there are uh, wars and horrible things going on in the world. The net positive of the world is way stronger than the net negative. So spread love and, uh, and be kind to one another. I couldn't agree more. Thank you so much, Alan. My pleasure.